Hello and you are listening to Scar Joe A Gogo, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I am Luke and this week we are talking about the island. 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 to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer, if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scarjo go. Michael Bay. His name alone sends shudders down the weak spines of the most ferocious of nerds. A mere mention of this man sends the self-professed film buffs into a foaming frenzy. Now, this is a name synonymous with um, the endless clattering of incoherent robots and leveling cities with gratuitous bone explosions. You know, cinemas showing his films actually have allocated splash zones in the first few rows because of all the testosterone that is just dripping from that screen. But all that patented Bayhem aside, what else is Michael Bay good at? Now, I contend that he's good at selling you a product. And I know that he's especially proud of his powers of reinvention. Now, I quote here, Nick Cage wasn't a big actor when I cast him, nor was Ben Affleck before I put him in Armageddon. Shia LaBeouf wasn't a big movie star before he did Transformers, and then he exploded. Nobody in the world knew about Megan Fox until I found her, and I put her in Transformers. Do you guys, dear listener, do you remember Dumpy Ben Affleck in Days and Confused or Mallrats, in both cases, pretty much playing a gross, reprehensible shit? Michael Bay and company uh, remember, I quote this article, Ben Affleck was new on the scene. We put him through the Bruckheimer Bay machine. Like, you're no longer chasing Amy. You're going to have to go to the gym. Former vice president of Bay Films, Jennifer Klein said. Jerry Bruckheimer had a problem with his teeth, Bay said. He's got baby teeth. I fixed Cruz's teeth. We're going to fix his teeth. So Ben got a beautiful set of teeth out of it. So, you know, this is what I mean. It's not even for Bay just putting these people on the big screen, putting them in a huge film. He is physically altering them, changing our perception of them and turning them into the much beloved movie stars that we know today. It's like Michael Bay is the sorting hat of Hollywood, like aspiring actors try him on and he decides what they get to be, like mm, action star. You're a uh, sex symbol. You're, um, you're still Steve Buscemi. So what of our aspiring actress, Scarlett Johansson, the star of this podcast? What will Michael Bay make of Scarlett Johansson when he gets his greasy hands on her in his blockbuster film, The Island? Is she going to be tainted by his influence or will he rocket her to new heights? Holy shit, son, we are about to find out. 
When we last left Scarlet, it was actually a very long time ago, some weeks ago, but I've returned from my holiday hiatus with renewed vigor, recharged my batteries. Thank you all very much for your patience. I know you all missed the show. I know I was flooded with emails and questions and comments and when when's the show coming back all that sort of stuff none of that happened uh and the last film we watched if you recall was woody allen's surprisingly sinister match point kind of a hitchcock homage 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 that cast scarlet as a femme fatale who ended up getting a lot more than she bargained for am i right spoilers uh, and it was a standout performance in a standout film. I'd never seen it before, and I really enjoyed it. Now, speaking of never seeing a film before, I've never seen The Island, and I was burnt. I was the angry nerd that was uh, frothing at the mouth because I'd seen The Rock, I'd seen Armageddon, I think I might have seen Bad Boys, I, I think I might have even seen Pearl Harbor on a video or DVD or whatever was happening in 2005, and I was just like, enough is enough. No more. I'm not going to go and see the island. Even though, you know, Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan, just had finished uh, the Star Wars saga. And uh, Scarlet, who of course I love, are both in it. So um, I've been curious about this one. This is one that, uh, you know, I keep seeing is about to come up. And I'm like, yeah, about time I check this out. So let's dive in together. Let's pick it all apart. Let's see what Michael Bay does with this thing. Because this is a bit controversial. I don't think Michael Bay makes very good films, but I don't think he's a particularly terrible director. I think that is just the content for the most part that he's dealing with. I don't think he takes Transformers very seriously. He's a manly man, a testosterone-filled man, a man of, like, cars and girls and um, oil fires and speedboats, meteorites. I think he thinks that adults getting bent out of shape about what is essentially a, a children's toy line in his eyes, at least. He doesn't have the nostalgia for it. I don't think he gives a shit. I think he just goes, right, yep, let's go crazy, let's blow things up. But, uh, you know, when you see his other work, you see things like pain and gain and, and I don't know what else he's done. But he's more than capable. And he's especially a, a maestro at taking all these really complicated elements um, huge crews, pulling them all together and getting a result, which is why he keeps getting work, of course, because I think this man can do what nobody else can do in terms of bringing together a, a gigantic film and making all the pieces slot together seamlessly. He happens, though, to be saddled with some really, really shitty scripts, and much like uh, someone like George Lucas, perhaps, I'm not sure he's entirely comfortable working with actors. I don't think that the uh, performance, the motivation is forefront in Michael Bay's mind. All speculation, how will that relate to the island? Well, let's find out. Let's let's find out. We're going to find out. Finding out now. So it begins. The, the camera pans across the ocean towards the titular island. And uh, Scarlett does receive second billing in this film behind uh, Ewan McGregor. And uh, we actually see her only seconds into the film this time. There are quick shots of her intercut with the island. And she's got long blonde hair blowing in the wind. There's a billowing white dress. It very much, right from the beginning, feels like it's a music video or a perfume ad or something like that. Uh, there's a certain gloss, a certain sheen to Michael Bay films. And I do think everything he makes looks like a commercial to a degree. 
He's not looking at the real gritty version of what people actually look like. He is interested in that Hollywood shine where everything is bigger, better, and more important and more epic than it is in real life. And you can see already, just in these first couple of shots, that he is working hard to turn Scarlet into the most desirable, glamorous movie star. She is the object of our obsession, and he wants her to look epic on screen. It's not very natural, it's not very organic, but it's working. So she's on a future boat with 60s Star Trek garbed Ewan, and while she's bathed in golden light and uh, looking at him seductively, he ends up getting shot, falls into the water like a dummy, and is manhandled by uh, like the bald dance pants wearing group of chorus members. Uh, so now Scarlet is suddenly in the water, again, looking more like an angel or a nymph than an average everyday woman you might see on the street. Um, and, you know, we're used to seeing her dressed like an everyday woman you see on the street. Most of the films that we've talked about in the past, she's a jeans and t-shirt hoodie sort of person for the most part. But no, here, she, she's like a siren sort of beckoning him. She's the otherworldly beauty who is just out of reach. It's all flowing and dreamlike, and guess what? It turns out to actually be a dream, uh, fitting as she is portrayed as the thing of dreams, and then the water drains away to reveal that Ewan is in bed. I really love this shot. It's like an overhead shot. All the water sort of piles out around him, and you see that he's actually lying on his bed. Really seamless transition. So, you know, hey, maybe Michael Bay can direct. Very clear shot. Nice little bit of storytelling there. Will it uh, continue in that vein? Don't know. Okay, plot. Ewan lives in a facility, sparse, white, future place where he is assigned a number and even his piss is monitored by ominous Big Brother types. Uh, but apparently if you want to escape this big white concrete place, uh, you can win the lottery. And if you win the lottery, you get to go to the titular island. And I actually thought this place, as they start to move around it, all these other white-clad people who are in a very similar situation to Ewan. I actually thought it looked like the Citadel in the Mass Effect games, if you if you played that. I wonder if there was a bit of an influence there. So, around eight minutes into this thing, we see Scarlet for real. This is the real deal, not a dream, not an imaginary story. She's wearing a white jumpsuit like all the other plebs. Um, she's with other women as well, but instantly she stands out. Even in a crowd, you see her straight away. She's got her hair back in a tight ponytail, and she really is made up like she's in an advertisement for cosmetics or perfume. I, I honestly think perhaps this is the most glamorous we've ever seen her in a film so far, which is really interesting considering that she is playing one of the numbered herd, just like Ewan. I mean, this is a dystopian future, and, and she's one of the... Uh, lower class in here, but she looks absolutely stunning. It's like Bay just cannot help himself. The sorting hat is spoken. Sex symbol. Out you go. Go join Megan Fox in the dining hall. Ten points to sexy door. But speaking of Megan Fox, at least this isn't one of those Megan Fox shots where the camera starts like halfway up her ass. I mean, we actually do start on Scarlett's face, which, you know, is a novel way for Michael Bay to introduce her. Although ironically, of course, it was Sofia Coppola who um, started, introduced Scarlett with a shot of her ass. Now, um, she's very wide-eyed, perky, and flirtatious with Ewan in this scene. Um, she uses her charms, actually, to sneak him some bacon at breakfast. 
Uh, this is Bacon. He was cruelly denied by the cafeteria lady because of his failed piss test. So uh, already go in there, update the IMDb synopsis. I already think I know what this movie is about. The Island, 2005. In a dystopian future, a man fails his piss test and enlists an attractive young woman to smuggle him bacon. Fantastic. Island, quest for bacon. This thing's won me over already. But no, look, they are told to separate by the black jumpsuit-wearing guards. Mmm. Things are a bit black and white here. You're not gonna have to attend film school to pick apart this film. And, uh, Sean Bean, old Ned Stark, very thin, clean-shaven version, is actually the head of this facility. And, uh, he sees you and has a meeting with him to talk about his nightmares, you know, of, of the drowning in the water and the bald dance troupe. But uh, Ewan, of course, uses this opportunity to bitch about his bacon deficiencies. And Ewan has a terrible American accent in this as well, which is something I've accused um, Scarlett of having a bad accent in the past. Ewan's worse. You know, he gets a lot of shit for his performances, like for being quite wooden in Star Wars. He's not that great in this either, and this is sort of post-Star Wars. I, I wonder if there's something about train spotting where he's actually getting to use his real accent and speak very naturally in um, that Scottish brogue because it's written by a Scottish writer as well that uh, just, you know, he was able to get something really natural out of him. But uh, I don't think Michael Bay was able to get something particularly um, natural out of Ewan in this film. But this isn't Ewan, how you going? It's Scarlet Joe Gno Gno Gno. Scarlet Joe Go Gno. Joe Go. Scarlet Go Go Go. Scar Joe Go Go. So fuck him. Anyway, Bean explains that the outside world is contaminated, it's not safe, they're in this facility for their own good, and uh, he wants to run more tests on Ewan, most probably piss tests, uh, most probably to further test his bacon levels. You look tired today, are your uh, bacon levels a little low? How often do you hear that at work? So um, look, back to Scarlett, later she's seen wearing a, a very ugly turquoise smock as she undertakes her day job of injecting things into other things, I think is her job. Um, but yet, you know, despite this crazy work outfit, she still looks totally radiant. Uh, and she's seen assisting a pregnant woman who collapses on the floor and is about to give birth and thus will get to go to the island. So Scarlett definitely appears to be infinitely helpful uh, already in this film. She's this, like, guardian angel who's concerned about both bacon and babies, which really is, like, the perfect being. Um, there appears to be a deliberate reason for this sort of sweet, wide-eyed innocence, though. It occurred to me, and I hadn't seen this film before, and this actually gets confirmed pretty much in these words later on, uh, but I was thinking at this point, these characters are almost like children. It's like they're not fully formed. It's like they're sort of seeing the world in a very naive, childlike way. And uh, as it progresses, you begin to realise, oh, yes, this is very deliberate. And um, it actually becomes a bit clumsy as it, it continues. And uh, by the way, I mentioned Steve uh, Bashemi, Bashimi, I can't say his name before. Um, he, I learned how to say it back when we did Ghost World. I've forgotten. I don't listen to the episodes once I've recorded them. You listen to the, you, what? You listen to this stuff? <laughs> you sucker. But yeah, he's Ewan's friend and he doesn't wear white. He wears normal day clothes and he works in this sort of dirty behind the scenes industrial area. And um, I think it's funny, like this is the one actor that Bay really isn't interested in making look good. It's like he sort of said, look, don't send Steve to makeup. I kind of want him to look like someone left 
two fried eggs on a pile of hair clippings. Like, do you think you can do that? Mission accomplished, guys. You did it. But I don't want to get bogged down with the minutiae, minutiae, minutiae details of the plot. Because if you haven't already guessed, the outside world, it turns out, isn't really contaminated. And this facility, it's not just injecting things into other things, it is making clones. And all these numbered people, like Ewan and Scarlet, are actually clones, and they're all being grown in these gross plastic clone bags in the basement. Now, here's something I wasn't expecting. I was expecting the clone thing, wasn't expecting this. We cut back to Scarlet, and her hair is down. She's wearing black now, what? Not, not white. And she looks fierce and kind of like badass. And then suddenly Ewan McGregor is punching the shit out of her. What is going on? And then I'm like, oh, see, it's not actually her. It's her bad girl styled hologram that is fighting Ewan's hologram as the real Scarlet and Ewan do this sort of Wii Sports Resort airboxing outside the arena. Now, this film was made in 2005 and set in 2019. So why does Scarlet's avatar kind of look like a Pam Anderson style bad girl from the early mid nineties? Like, is she barbed wire now? What's going on? But she does do roundhouse kicks and occasionally gets kicked in the face. And she ends up knocking out one of Ewan's virtual teeth. That's kind of weird and wins the battle. So she beats him, which is really cool. So when we talk about Michael Bay reinventing people, and it is often as action heroes, uh, is this the seed here? I mean, this is where it happens, right? I mean, this is Scarlet's first role as a legitimate badass action hero. And it's Michael Bay's faith in her in a way that is going to pave that way to and give her the experience, I suppose, and get her, you know, doing fight scenes and training and stuff. Uh, that it's going to pave the way for characters like Black Widow or Lucy. And now we're hearing, despite the fact that she's only just popped out a little tacker, a little baby, a little talking about clones, a little mini Scarlet, she's going to go off and do Ghost in the Shell. That is going to be a very energetic, crazy action role, I'm assuming. I mean, I haven't, I saw the anime, the first anime movie a long time ago. I don't really remember it that well, but I remember there was action for sure. This isn't about like a like a haunted seashell or anything like that. This is this is the real thing. So after the fight, after she wins, after she kicks Ewan McGregor's ass, which in theory means that she would be capable of, of beating um, Darth Maul, General Grievous, Darth Vader, kind of by proxy. Uh, after all this, she has a chat with Ewan in the bar. Um, but really, see, he's doing all the plot driving and questioning of his surroundings. He's the one that's suspicious of the facility. She is still just playing the wide-eyed, naive child and keeping things very, very basic. And unfortunately, despite the fact that Bay has just empowered her with this fight scene, she really is here just to be something pretty for him to explain the story so far to. They think if he's explaining it to the cafeteria lady, the one that denied him bacon, we're going to switch off. We're going to walk out of the theatre. He needs to explain it to somebody uh, that's easy on the eye. So that's what she's there for. Just nodding. Hmm, yeah, okay. And unfortunately, I mean, these characters have no inner lives. But then they're clones and they're young'uns. So I guess that's very intentionally so. Doesn't make them particularly exciting to watch. But I guess it all fits in with the story. And then the lottery begins. And Scarlet is selected. 
Now, of course, she is very naively and um, obliviously thrilled at being selected for the lottery uh, because she's obviously never seen a dystopian science fiction movie before. So she says goodbye to Ewan and he says goodbye to all that free bacon. Off she goes. The end, right? No, there's more to it than that. Ewan sneaks into a restricted area and he sees the mother give birth. Remember the mother from before? But then, holy shit, guys, her baby is taken away and then she's, like, chemically killed, like, with an injection or something. And um, to base credit, again, this is actually an effective emotional scene, which I, I think, you know, is pretty well handled. This isn't racist robots in the desert or, uh, you know, a building getting demolished. This is uh, something which kind of takes us by surprise and packs an emotional punch, which makes me think, if he has the right material, can he do this? Guy's being mean to him. Why you got to pick on poor little Michael Bay all the time? What did he ever do to you? Oh, yeah. Revenge of the Fallen, I remember. And then uh, Ewan witnesses Michael Clark Duncan, another clone who's being harvested for organs, and then he runs back to save Scarlet, who is still sweetly and naively packing up all of her white room with all her uh, meager possessions, white possessions. And uh, interesting here, I, I think this is really interesting because Sean Bean refers to these clones under with the term product. You know, he's in the manufacturing business, these are his products. And I think that's interesting because that's Michael Bay's approach to his actors as well, a lot of the time. You know, Scarlet is not being presented so much as a character, but as a desirable product uh, that the audience wants to consume. Again, it's that gloss of advertising, which I think studios, when you look at all sponsors and you look at product placement and you look at um, how most movies are selling you something along the way, no wonder studios like working with Michael Bay because he makes things very appealing. If he wants you to believe that Scarlett Johansson is the most desirable woman of all time, then that's what he's going to do. That's how he's going to shoot her. That's what he's going to sell you. Now, you might think I'm giving Michael Bay too much credit. You're saying, well, she is one of the most attractive women in the world, etc., etc. But no, I mean, she's not. Obviously, that's subjective. But we think that because we've been sold that. And let's not forget that this is the 20th movie we've looked at. And prior to that, and, and we're just going to talk about her adult movies because it's when she was a kid isn't relevant to this discussion. But as an adult, although she plays characters that people are attracted to and she's obviously an attractive character she's never really played that person that is so incredibly desirable that the world is going to just stop for her i mean you look at something like ghost world or lost in translation she's that outsider yes there are people in those things that mention that she's attractive or think she's attractive but she's not stopping traffic either i mean she's able to blend into her surroundings in all of these other films. The directors aren't going, hey, look at this woman. See this? Can you believe this? Whoa. Whereas Michael Bay's going to escalate that idea as the film continues. And we're already starting to see a change in her. Her hair is down now. She's a lot freer. She's out of this uh, rigid, manufactured, constructed life. Um, and her facade begins to crack this sort of sweet, innocent, happy thing, as Ewan informs her that there is no island and urges her to escape the facility with him. And this is the real shotted emotion that's starting to break through now. This is where we actually see her drop that character and start to be a bit perturbed. So these two go on the run now. 
the authorities, the people in black are pursuing and they run for a really long time. And there's lots of shots of her from behind running. I even thought there was a sort of Megan Fox-esque close-up where she's bathed in golden yellow light and is all sweaty and yelling, no, which I feel like that's half of the Transformers movie, that sort of golden radiant look covered in dirt that's been dabbed on by a makeup artist. Someone else has got the spray bottle and then putting the sweat all over them. But the cool thing again here is that she gets to save Ewan. You know, he gets beaten up and she's able to smack some unsuspecting dude with a wrench and help uh, facilitate their escape. And there's great believable emotion from Scarlett here too. And, and this is probably her standout moment in the film in terms of performance. And it's when she sees all these half-grown clones in the basement for herself for the first time. And what's great about it is she sells it all silently. And we've established many times that this is something she's very good at. I think she's always been able to communicate more with a look. And I think Michael Bay's smart for not having her say anything in this point. She's not going, oh my god, they're clones, look at this. He just lets her take it all in and feel it. So again, Michael Bay, he does have some sort of control here. And I wonder if that's a sign of respect for her, that he, he's not doing the indulgent thing. He's letting her sell it silently and thereby injects it with more meaning. So look, they escape, but guess what? It's not water around this place. They're not going off to the island. They end up in a desert. That's like the opposite of an island. Lied to by everybody. So they run around a lot more and there's enough helicopter shots of them running across barren landscapes for me to actually start thinking that I was watching a missing chapter of Lord of the Rings. Got quite confused for a while there. And, um, you know, we're told more exposition. These clones, of course, are clones of rich people who have purchased them in case they need to replace organs or surrogate a child, play multiplayer Xbox, have sex with themselves. Rich people. They are incorrigible. And uh, Sean Bean's really pissed off about the escape. These guys are worth a lot of money, so he hires mercenary Digimon Hunso to find them. That's a name that I thought when I wrote it down. I will learn to say that before I record the show, because that would be the professional thing to do. I forgot. Digimon is actually kind of like a, a Pokemon-style game, so I'm sure it's not pronounced like that. But uh, let's call him Digimon anyway. And let's pretend that it's funny and good-natured and not disrespectful. Cool guy, actually. Cool actor. I kind of wish he was in this a little bit more. So now that they're hiding in the ruins, Scarlet is definitely now appropriately Michael Bay dirty and sweaty, which is a very stark contrast from her introduction. But as I said before, it is that very fake Michael Bay dirt and sweat. We often talk about the tropes in Scarlet films, uh, the things that she is renowned for, and uh, this is certainly a Michael Bay trope and something that uh, I'll never not be able to see in his films from now on. And uh, they find a bar out there in the desert. And this is kind of cool because, um, you know, as I said, this is set in 2019. And you think, well, how far future is are things going to be in 2019? Uh, well, they're not. This bar is just very much like a modern day bar. And the regular folk are all dressed like regular folk, and they tease Ewan and Scarlet about their Star Trek jumpsuits. See, what Sean Bean's doing here is all pretty much secret. People know they've bought clones, but they don't realise that the clones actually think and feel. They just think they're, they're basically meat in a vat. 
uh, for spare parts. They don't realize that the only way to um, make these things is to give them uh, sentience. So nobody recognizes them as clones. Nobody knows what to make of them. And uh, these clones, Scarlet, Ewan, they don't understand shit. Like when the bartender asks Scarlet if she wants a drink straight up, she obligingly looks straight up at the sky. Like seriously, this scene is like a stone's throw away from that whole Back to the Future, Pepsi free? No, you'll have to pay for it. All fish out of water laughos. Like if you were in a bar and a bartender said to you straight up and you didn't know what he meant, you'd probably go, uh, sorry? So sorry, what was that? Oh, uh, no, I, I, sorry, I'm not sure what that means. Or would you look straight up in the air and just keep staring at the ceiling until uh, they asked you what you were doing? Probably the former, but hey, I'm not a big Hollywood screenwriter or director. The fuck would I know, right? So they go to Buscemi for help, who lives in the real world. And, uh, you know, he knows about this whole scheme. He's known all along. He gets to go home to a real house while they all go into the little white cubes. And um, this leads Scarlet to being given uh, nothing more to do in this scene, really, than look blankly at exposition for a few sequences, stare at clothing and credit cards, like they're bewildering alien artifacts. I mean, I don't know, personally, like, I don't know what a camshaft looks like. Like, I, I couldn't draw one for you. But if you put one in front of me, I guarantee that I'm not going to be mesmerised in silent awe at this thing for five minutes. I'll go, oh yeah. You know, Steve Buscemi, he, he gives, like, Scarlet a train ticket. And she's like, he's like, you'll need this to get on the train. And she's, like, looking at it, like, what is this strange alien thing? Wouldn't you just be like, okay, yep, all right, sure. But they don't know nothing. God, you want to blow their minds? Take them to the zoo. Show them a giraffe. What are they going to make of that? The fuck is that thing? Easy way to ha add uh, half an hour to the film, <laughs> which it doesn't need, by the way. Okay, so look, speaking of which, we're, we're heading now into the action half. This film's really kind of split. First part's all science fiction, dystopia, hmm, hmm, ethical, strange things, conspiracies, and then it's all like, bayhem, action, bam, 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 shoot, shoot and stuff. Buscemi is killed, which is good, I don't have to try and say his name anymore. There's more running. Scarlet hammers a dude with a nail gun. This is great. I'm really hoping she's going to get more action as this continues. Uh, she's proving to be very proficient with uh, a lot of different weapons. Plus three with nail guns. Excellent work. And then um, a nice quiet moment as they reach LA and Scarlet sees herself on a billboard and on a TV commercial where her real person, the person that she's a clone of, is actually a super glamorous model looking stunning. It's this black and white advertisement and she's seen kissing a man. Now this is unusual for them as well because Sean Bean has told us that these clones uh, don't know anything about sex and have all their sexual urges programmed out of them. They don't have any desires in that regard whatsoever. So this is a very unusual thing for her. She's displaced. And I think that's interesting because we always talk about her playing the misfit, the outcast, the person on the fringe of things. And she does that in Ghost World, in Lost in Translation. She does that in Under the Skin. And even here in a Michael Bay film where she's glamorous and she gets all these epic movie star shots, she still is in a way on the outside looking in. It's like you just cannot take that away from her. And the funny thing is they're the most truthful and successful uh, parts of the film. 
And uh, the great thing about this sequence as well, if we're going to get all film school, is uh, this is where the product, Scarlet, is a product. She's seen on an advertisement. It's a commercial within a commercial, in a way. The film is a big commercial for Scarlet, and she's watching a commercial, which is a commercial for Scarlet within the film. Snakehead eating its own tail, cat fucking a dog. Uh, shooting, car chases, a lot more running. Scarlet gets to cling to Ewan's back while he flies a jet bike. I think that's a bit shitty considering how proficient she's been up until now. She was the one with the wrench. She was the one with the nail gun. He should get on the back of the bike, right? What about an Avengers? When that, that's a, like a flying bike thing that the Chitari, the Chitari, Shitari have. She flips up into the air and jumps on that thing. Um, and look, they somehow survive things that would kill most people instantly as Bay goes into full Bayhem mode and starts to blow up half the city. Uh, there is some recurring imagery here that I've noticed, though. Um, earlier, that shot I was talking about, sweaty, golden, scarlet, she was clinging to a chain-link fence, her body, like, up against it. And now she's seen here in almost an identical shot doing the same thing with a net. It's that sort of uh, Sarah Connoring thing that goes on when uh, she sees all the kids blown up in the playground, that kind of, ah, oh, emotion, I'm up against something, fingers curled around it. Nargh. She doesn't say gnog, but I bet she's thinking it. And then they um, go and hook up with the real Ewan, which is a shame in a way, because I think this would be her chance to get a performance out of here and to have an arc, is if we were to see her play the two characters, play her clone self and her real self. Now, granted, her real self is a supermodel, as we just established, and I can't imagine the writers of this or Michael Bay giving a rich inner life to a supermodel or doing anything particularly unexpected with that character, but it turns out the reason she was selected for the lottery is that the supermodel, real person, was badly damaged in a car crash and is in the hospital awaiting new body parts. So instead we go to real Ewan, and uh, real Ewan, who is actually Scottish, she's this billionaire, he can't help but mack on her, further selling her desirability to the audience. Like, I think he even says to clone Ewan, like, God, you know, I've been trying for years, how did you find a girl like her? And then, like uh, Steve, Steve, Stevie B, he puts some clothes for her to wear, um, puts them upstairs for her to go and grab, which means, you think about it, she spends over half this film wearing other people's underwear. How did uh, real Ewan become a, a billionaire in this uh, scenario? I think he is most probably some kind of bacon magnate, is my ill-informed guess. So, Scarlet is made to wait at the house while the two Ewans head out to do manly things. Now, this is a real shame, because I want to pay off for why she's there on this adventure with him. Like, she better have something to do apart from cling to the back of a bike and run along behind him. Or why is she on this journey? Minority Report managed. That had, like, just Tom Cruise for the most part, right? Just running around, doing his own thing. But Scarlet's here, so give her something to do. Actors like things to do. But instead, we waste a lot of time with real Ewan, um, who's going to sell out clone Ewan in order to preserve himself. I mean, he did pay $5 million for clone Ewan for a reason. But uh, crafty clone Ewan tricks Digimon into shooting the real Ewan instead, so now clone Ewan can pretend to be the real Ewan. And he returns to Scarlet. And this is a problematic scene. And this is a notorious scene, because uh, I'd heard about this prior to seeing the film. Despite them not being aware of sex, 
and being stripped of all sexual urges, she absolutely throws herself on him. And this leads to a very brief, kind of soap opera looking sex scene, complete with, you know, soft music. And you know, when they do those voyeuristic shots with blurred objects in the foreground while the camera pans around them, uh, it's almost like the room, but thankfully about uh, a tenth shorter. And look, God, I mean, considering how long she bewilderingly stared at both the credit card and her train tickets, I just can't help but wonder, like, what she thought when he got his cock out. She would have just been like, holy shit, I thought the giraffe was strange. What the fuck are you going to do with that? What? I mean, why were we denied all their embarrassing first-time fumbling outtakes? That's what I want to know. Them figuring out the sex thing could have taken up half the film. But let's think about this scene. So here's Michael Bay, someone who's supposedly super indulgent and over the top and uh, likes to objectify women, all those kind of things. So why is this the most bland, tone-deaf, inconsequential, unnecessary sex scene? It's just all wrong. Like, there's no reason for it to be there. It fails to titillate. It's nothing sexy about it at all. And it also fails to advance the story. In fact, I would argue that it actively fights the story because we've already established that these characters have no sex urges. It's just not part of them. If touching certain parts of their body felt good to them, they would have figured that out a long time before. Obviously, that hasn't happened. And they don't feel those urges, so why is it happening now? Feels like an odd screenwriting 101. Oh shit, we're getting towards the end of the film and he, he, we better make sure he gets the girl. Now, without any sex urges, these people are asexual, right? Which, you know, is a real thing. That the people uh, experience that. It's a sexual orientation. Would we accept it if one of these characters was homosexual and then suddenly uh, someone of the opposite sex threw themselves on them and they went, oh yeah, okay, great, this is what I've been missing. Like, that wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't fly. So, so why does it fly here with an asexual? Something to think about. And this scene is also notorious on internet communities and trivia pages uh, because of the idea that Scarlett wanted to go topless in this screen. She's wearing a bra during the uh, ridiculously brief limp sex scene. And uh, apparently, I don't know the reasoning, Michael Bay uh, decided, no, let's not do that. I'm curious about that. I'm curious as to why that is. I don't think it would have saved the scene. I don't think it would have been a uh, particularly great idea for Scarlet by any means. Um, I think the right thing probably happened. I think the scene shouldn't exist at all. But I wonder if Michael Bay was just uncomfortable with it, because if you watch that scene... He doesn't have his normal confidence that he has in other sequences. Like, normally he's really overconfident, whereas this thing just feels like he's got no viewpoint. Like, he doesn't know why it's there or what he wants to do with it, and he kind of wants to get it over with quickly. But when you think about how much he fetishizes her before that, it's like he spent all this time on the foreplay and then just blew it prematurely. Considering all Michael Bay's uh, posturing and testosterone, he would hate to hear me say that. He'd probably send his tiger after me or something. So look, um, look, we are right near the end. I mean, this thing comes right in at the uh, <laughs> comes right in in the final act. Uh, Scarlet then allows herself to be captured. She reunites with Ewan at the facility to free all the clones. Uh, there is a nice sequence where she smuggles a gun in. Um, she's got it 
down the front of her pants. She pulls it out and she starts to get to shoot guys at the hospital. I had Lucy flashbacks for a while there. I was like, oh yeah, she's going to get all Lucy crazy. He's going to give her a really nice big action finale. But no, Ewan's the man. He's being manly. He faces and defeats Sean Bean completely solo. And Scarlet is pushed to the side until the clones escape at the end. And Ewan's reward, of course, is to make out with Scarlet some more. See each other. No, hello, how are you? Did you do okay? I need to go to a hospital. It's they're kissing, tongues out. They love this thing. They've had a taste of it. That's their life now. And they head off in the future boat in order to, to make out and eat bacon, I suppose. Live happily ever after because uh, I guess that's what he was fighting for and all he really wanted, even though he's not supposed to have those urges and he'd already just had it. I don't know, what the fuck, the island? So, conclusion. Um, it's not a terrible film. It's actually quite watchable, but I feel like the modern blockbuster, and I guess it seems weird to say that a film that was only made 10 years ago doesn't feel like a modern blockbuster, but I, I feel like there has been a bit of a change, and this is one of those films that was on the cusp. I don't feel like it has the spectacle or kind of intrigue to warrant its running time or to really hook a modern audience in. I think it already feels a little bit dated. I mean, it is a big film and it has some big impressive sequences, but if you're just looking for hollow spectacle, hollow spectacle's been done far better in the years since. Now, the actual science fiction premise is interesting, but the film kind of skirts around the real impact of that, and I don't feel that it has anything particularly important to say by the end of it. And uh, I know other stories have played around with a similar theme, and my feeling is they probably do it better. Um, that, you know, maybe that should have been the focus, as opposed to turning this into a full-blown action movie. Um, that's the film. As for Scarlet, where does this leave us? Um, I do think that Michael Bay is successful here in raising her stock as a big star, as a movie star, and as an incredibly desirable, glamorous woman. Certainly not about emotional range or believability, even though there are tastes of that within the film. This is about selling the product, and that product is Scarlett Johansson, and I think he is successful with that. I think that this probably did rocket her forward and certainly proved that she was capable of being an action star. Even though she doesn't get as much action as I'd hoped, uh, there's certainly the taste of it that proved that, you know, she's believable in that role and, and that she can do it. And, you know, we always ask, why was she cast? Why did she do it? Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, this is a, a huge blockbuster movie helmed by star maker Michael Bay. Like, you got to do it at least once, right? I mean, fuck, look what it did for Affleck. Uh, though, interestingly, um, I did read that this movie did not fare particularly well domestically. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before we go. We've got to do our scarcabulary. If you're new to the show, that is what is the new word or phrase that we picked up today? What is the thing that we're going to add to the grand lexicon of Scarlet Science? And that word is Bayvention. I'm going to schedule a Bayvention to take dumpy, crazy baby teeth 
Ben Affleck and turn him into a buff sex symbol Adonis. I'm going to do a big old Bayvention on him. That's what he thought. It's like a, a, a Bay, both a Bay intervention and a Bay reinvention. The Bayvention. Who will be next to get the Bayvention? I don't know, but I can't wait to sit through three hours of bone explosions to find out. We also always talk about Scarlet's three greatest feats. What did she accomplish in this film? What are we going to remember her for in this film? Number one, she brought a man bacon. Scarlett Johansson and bacon together at last. If someone out there would like to paint me a preferably very large picture of Scarlett Johansson wrapped in bacon, frame it nicely, I will be eternally grateful. I promise I will display it prominently in the uh, studio office room. The man was down. She brought him some bacon. Number two, she nailed some guy she just met. And by that, I mean she got a nail gun and she nailed his hand to the door. Like with many nails. Jesus Christ him. Christed him. Right there. You know what I mean. I've seen pictures. And finally, number three, often the serious one, she proved herself to be a genuine, believable action hero, briefly. But the seed was sown, and the great thing about these seeds, these scarlet seeds that we keep seeing being sown, is they were sown a while ago, and we've already seen the, the, the tree that's come out of these things. We've seen the fruit. Whether you agree with this film or not, we've seen those apples. So next time on ScarJo A Go Go, and I'm hoping very much to keep a weekly schedule here. That's always the goal. A lot of other things come up. As you know, I've got two other podcasts. There's The Book Was Better, which will be returning in the next week or two. And there's also FPcast, which is also every week. Uh, so, look, if Scarlet goes missing one week, if I'm not here, don't fret. I'm not giving up the show. It will be back straight away. You can always look either on the Facebook page to find out what's happening or go to fruitlesspursuits.com where you'll find out what's happening. It's all the new info on all of the current podcasts and there's also links there to our Facebook discussion group. So if you'd like to come and join the conversation and have a chat or ask some questions or anything like that, then please do and we will do our best to facilitate that. Oh yeah, next week is Scoop which is another Woody Allen, so I'm really excited about that. I imagine it'll be a vastly different tone from the other one, but uh, I haven't seen many Woody Allen films. I've quite enjoyed the ones that I have seen. It's also got my fellow Australian mate, g'day mate, friend in there, um, Hugh Jackman. How exciting is that? Scarlett and Hugh, they're going to have a great time, I imagine. So uh, it's another one I'm looking forward to seeing. And I'm hoping that you, dear listener, are going to be looking forward to it too and that you will join me for that very, very soon. So thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience over the holidays. It feels good to be back. And I'm going to catch you next week for Scoop. See ya. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe, go, go.